From Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Lots of politics to get to, obviously, as we are less than four weeks away from the election. Lots of politics to get to just in the state superintendent's race. It's been kind of a crazy week, and it actually started at the end of last week, didn't it? It did, and I think crazy is a good word to describe um, the state of the superintendent race right now. But yeah, as you alluded to, last Friday, uh, I went out with our multimedia journalist, Andrew Reed. Uh, Superintendent of Public Instruction, Sherry Ybarra, had really her only major campaign event uh, that she's promoting at this point. She held it at a dive bar in Eagle uh, last Friday night. We could go today as we sit here recording the podcast. And from the beginning, this thing was bizarre. Uh, and I'm, I'm not trying to pick on on anybody here, but, um, you know, we've... It's not what you would expect, because we go to campaign right. functions as reporters a lot to cover them. And so you, you get a certain vibe, you get a certain, you expect a certain sort of, you know, mood of the room. And it does not sound like uh, it was anything like what uh, you, you, you usually see when you go to one of these events. The event itself was unusual, but I don't want to bury the lead here. And so let's just get right into it. Yes. But the superintendent kicked off her campaign with a, a former educator, a former principal at Mountain Home Junior High, where superintendent worked. Uh, now he owns a bar in Eagle called The Gathering Place. And he helped her launch her campaign event there on Friday. And this is a guy who... Back in 2011, the state of Idaho pulled his teaching certificate, suspended it indefinitely amid multiple accusations of sexual harassment in the workplace at the school uh, where he worked at. And so he played host uh, to Superintendent Ibarra's campaign event on Friday at this bar called The Gathering Place. He appeared by the superintendent. And I asked Superintendent Ibarra about it. Did she know this guy? Did she know the owner of the bar? Did she know about the accusations? And she confirmed that yes. So anyways, the guy's name is William McCarroll Jr. He's gone by Bill or Billy before, uh, but he owns the bar. And the superintendent told me that uh, she knows him. She's a friend of him. She said he's been punished uh, and that she's still a friend of his. And it was interesting, she told me that there are no kids here and that this is a fundraiser and that, and that those accusations don't have anything to do with this. And so um, that in itself was, was very unusual. Uh, mm-hmm. The fact that this top educator in the state who's running for re-election would stand there with another educator who is legally not allowed uh, to teach or to be an administrator in schools right now because of these sexual harassment allegations. And I want to point out that we weren't just, we didn't go to, you know, 15 Ybarra rallies and pick the one where it fell off the rails uh, to cover that and, and, and anything like that. This was really the only major event that she's been promoting, right, right. Kevin? It's the only one that's on her Facebook page, her campaign Facebook page. So by default, uh, you went there last week just to kind of get a sense of uh, of the scene, and what you found was not what you expected, but we were you were going to cover whatever uh, whatever the uh, evening turned out to be. Yeah, we had known about this for weeks because the superintendent had promoted it, and I was prepared to just go and, and, and write about whatever happened, but as it got closer and closer, we kept wondering, why was it going to be taking place at this bar? You know, we have seen some political events uh, it, especially in downtown Boise, some downtown establishments, businesses uh, that do sell, you know, beer and wine and alcohol. Right. But right. And, and I remember, I mean, four years ago, 
I remember covering a meet and greet of, of Sherry Ibarra's in a downtown Boise bar. But the difference, one of the differences, was that you, there were some, you know, fairly uh, high-profile Republicans showing up for that meet and greet. It wasn't, uh, you know, it, it felt more like a campaign event, at least in the sense of who was showing up and what they were saying about the candidate. Right, and that didn't happen this time. Um, but really. We kept wondering, really, for the last couple of weeks leading up to the event, why is it at this place? Why did she pick this place? And so I worked with our data analyst, Randy Schrader, and he looked up a lot of state records to determine who owned this bar. And then it started kind of coming together. We got the bar owner's name, uh, remembered that he had been an educator, and then just uh, really the morning of the event ran that educator's name through state teaching certificates, which are publicly available in the state of Idaho. And when we ran this man's name through William McCarroll Jr., at the very top of the screen, there was a big red bar that said teaching certificate suspended. And then so it was like, oh my goodness. And then at that point, we started doing more research, found out the reason that the Professional Standards Commission, which is the group that regulates teacher certification in Idaho, had indefinitely suspended his teaching and administrator certificate in 2011 in the wake of these sexual harassment allegations involving at least three different subordinate employees at the school at the time. Um, and the individual, uh, Mr. McCarroll, did not contest the allegations. In fact, he waived his right to a due process hearing. Uh, that's kind of part of the process, a hearing to answer and uh, respond to the charges as part of the process. He waived that right, saying he wanted to expedite this process. It's important to note that he never admitted guilt mm -hmm. and has never been charged with a crime, but he did acknowledge the accusations exist and did acknowledge by waiving his hearing and not contesting the accusations that the state would impose discipline on his teaching right. certificate, which is exactly uh, what happened. So he has not been allowed to teach or serve as an administrator in Idaho schools since 2011. And state records do show that he did try unsuccessfully to have that reinstated in 2016, but was unsuccessful. As for the event itself, it did not look or feel like any kind of a traditional campaign event. There were no, you know, at this point, we know some of the heavy hitters within yeah, yeah. Uh, political circles. We know some of the donors. We know some of the folks active, uh, especially within the Republican Party. Those folks were not out there on Friday. Um, yeah, it was all we would expect to see legislators, lobbyists. No. Uh, no. None of those. Uh, we, you know, we were there uh, during the event and, and walked up to people. People in the bar did not realize that there was a campaign event that was going to happen that night. They did not know the superintendent. Eventually, uh, one large table of friends and coworkers of the superintendents uh, did show up, and then another couple guests trickled in about an hour and a half in. Uh, but it was just bizarre. They had, you know. Uh, 20 or so chairs set up in a circle in the front of the room and the tables were pushed out of the way, giving the impression that the superintendent might give the speech or address the bar. Nobody sat in the seats. She didn't give a big speech. She didn't talk about education initiatives or put forth her platform or even give a stump speech. She kind of walked from table to table with the help of this bar owner, introduced herself, uh, said she's running for re-election and would uh, appreciate support. Uh, it, it was just different than any other campaign event that I had really seen. But there was a very strong reaction to this article, which yeah. we published mm -hmm. Monday. I wanted to take 
some time and digest what had happened and be thoughtful about how we approached it. So we didn't run an article right away on Friday night. I wanted to spend the weekend thinking about it, doing a little bit more research, making sure that I understood what had happened and who was involved. And we ended up well, running an article Monday. This is going to be a serious story. I mean, anything you write about uh, a candidate a month before an election, especially something like this, it's going to resonate. So, you know. And resonate it did. It was picked up by the two main daily newspapers uh, in Boise. It's picked up in, in Twin Falls. A lot of discussion online, and a lot of people feel strongly about this, but it was very important in doing the story to go to the event itself and to give the superintendent a chance to ask her, did she know the bar owner and was she aware of the uh, allegations? And she said yes. She was aware of the allegations. She said in her words that he had been punished for that and that they were still friends and decides that there's no kids around here. Uh, a very strong reaction online um, to the story. If you want to go back, it was towards the beginning of the week. Um, but there's a story about it, some pictures from the event. Uh, but you can head over to the homepage at www.idahoednews.org uh, and get caught up on that story. But a wild week. Um, but, but by comparison, then Tuesday night when we had a, a candidate forum with Cindy Wilson, uh, you know, relatively, uh, relatively tame, uh, tame event by comparison. And this was an event that we had in the works since months. For months, we started planning it in June, and it was a roundtable discussion highlighting the state superintendent's race. Uh, we had attempted to have both candidates there. Uh, we reached out to both of them starting in June. Cindy Wilson, the Democratic nominee, uh, accepted our invitation and participated Tuesday night. Uh, Superintendent Ibarra never, her campaign team, uh, her State Department staff never got back to us, and she didn't tell me until Friday night last week that she would not be attending that event Tuesday. So it was different than what we had hoped to have. Uh, but yeah, we had uh, we went ahead and, and honored the event and, and honored Cindy Wilson's commitment. And so uh, for about an hour and 15 minutes, we asked Cindy Wilson questions about her leadership style, questions about her qualifications uh, for the race, and, and we took questions online. But one of my favorite things about the event Tuesday night, even though we couldn't have both candidates there, I really liked the panel that we put together. Yes. We had a charter school administrator, uh, Shay Davis, join us on the panel. Mm -hmm. And then we had a senior from Wallace High School, came down with his family the day before, uh, but a, a young man named John Webb. And he served on the panel. And he is a student journalist in Wallace. And he's going to be going on to the University of Idaho next year, studying broadcast journalism uh, and hoping to break into the news business himself. I was super excited about the panel that we put together, Kevin, and no, some of the good. questions that we were able to ask about that. And then we broadcast that uh, online, didn't we? Right. It, it was on Facebook Live Tuesday night. And you can go to our website and you can catch the, the forum and, and, and see it for yourself if you haven't already. Uh, just a couple things that kind of jumped out at me from what Cindy Wilson said uh, Tuesday night really strongly came out in support of pre-K. She, she has been talking about this throughout most of the campaign. Uh, at one point, uh, a member of the audience posed a question you know, that, I, that I posed to, to her. If you have to pick one thing that you do first, yeah. what's it going to be? And she said, it's got to be pre-K. We've got to address pre-K. A difficult thing to do, and something that you know pre-K advocates have been pushing for for years. Uh, you know, we have a, a story on, on IdahoEdNews.org about a new grant program that's uh, going to be used to try to uh, model some more pre-K programs around the state. But anyway, that was uh, 
one takeaway from Cindy Wilson's forum, uh, talk about the, the push for pre-K, that that's her top priority. Some criticism of uh, the way Superintendent Ibarra rolled out the uh, school safety plan uh, back in March. Yep. Uh, but she's been critical of that before. At any rate, there's a lot there, and, and you and the other two panelists, Shay, Shay Davis and, and John Webb, really covered a lot of ground. I thought, I thought you know, a lot of good questions, a lot of thoughtful questions, so there's a lot there. So if you want to get to know where Cindy Wilson stands on a lot of education topics, uh, go to our forum and check it out. Yeah, and we're recording this, for, and so yeah, you can actually watch the whole video from the whole hour and 15 minute event. And so we're actually recording this Friday morning, October 12th. But if you're listening to this today, this afternoon, there is one more really great opportunity to catch the superintendent candidates and to catch both of them. Uh, superintendent Ibarra and Cindy Wilson are going to be participating in a public television debate tonight, Friday, October 12th. That's going to be live on Idaho Public Television at 8 p.m. Mountain Time. And, Kevin, and that, too, is something that you'll be able to catch online afterwards. Yeah. So you know, it goes uh, it goes on the web right after the, the broadcast over the air. So and one way or the other, yeah. you can see it. We'll both be there on the panel asking questions, and we'll be working with our good friend Melissa Davlin from Idaho Reports and Idaho Public Television. She was our guest host on the podcast last week. We'll be working with her on this debate. You can catch it live Friday night or look for it online uh, anytime, really, between now on the election, but I'm looking we'll, forward to that. And that and we'll may have be a lot more to say about it on our next podcast. Yeah, that may be the only real public statewide debate uh, between these two. So not to miss it uh, on Friday. But I want to move forward because we have so many other races that we're looking at. And Kevin, you were looking at um, some of the campaign finance reports this week, kind of following the money. Uh, what you find? What struck you as interesting as you dug through these? Uh, Reports. Well, this week was Sunshine Report Week for statewide candidates, and this was a big report because it sort of brings us up to speed about what kind of money has been coming in, what kind of spending has been going on since the, the May primary, through the summer, through the end of September. And a couple of things that, uh, that were kind of takeaways for me, uh, Cindy Wilson continues to outraise Sherry Ibarra in the state superintendent's race. Not a huge amount of money we're talking about. Uh, but Wilson heads into the final few weeks of the race with about $40,000 of cash on hand compared to Ibarra's 10000 This isn't a lot of money in terms of you know, ad buys right. or, uh, or, or any kind of you know, big push in, in terms of, uh, of advertising or uh, literature drops or anything like that. But it does give you a sense of uh, where, where Wilson is hoping to get some of her support. Uh, she got uh, big contributions from A.J. Belukov and Belukov's wife. Uh, got uh, a donation from Boise Mayor Dave Beter, uh, Janie Ward-Engelking, a state senator, a retired uh, educator, Boise Democrat, uh, put in uh, some money into her campaign. So a lot of, you know, she's tapping into some very traditional Democratic circles to uh, try to raise some money uh, heading into the race, uh, heading into the, the close of the race. A lot of Sherry Ibarra's money actually coming from blogging groups, which doesn't really surprise me too much. I mean, one of the jobs of the state superintendent that we don't maybe pay as much attention to uh, as the education end of the job is that seat on the state land board right. and that role in uh, governing uh, the state's endowment lands. So some fairly sizable contributions from, from timber and logging groups. 
Um, she also received some money from three of her colleagues on the land board, uh, Secretary of State Lawrence Denny, Controller Brandon Wolf, Attorney General Lawrence Wasden. You know, and this storyline about fundraising in the superintendent's race is not really anything new. We've seen this before where uh, Ibarra has been outraised in races in the past. Happened twice in 2014. Both Didn't hold her back in the slightest. In, in the general, she has, she has won in the past at a fundraising disadvantage. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how that all plays out. Um, just quickly, um, some things that kind of jumped out at me at the... Uh, the fundraising and the Sunshine Reports in the governor's race and the lieutenant governor's race. Um, Brad Little outraised Paulette Jordan through this uh, summer uh, fundraising period. And what I also noticed, uh, maybe the bigger takeaway uh, beyond the dollars is, you know, we talked about this after the primaries, that both nominees were going to have a job of trying to shore up support within their parties, uh, trying to bring the factions within the parties together heading into November. And you can see some evidence in Brad Little's Sunshine Report that that's exactly what is happening. He received a $5,000 donation, the maximum donation you can get, from Tommy Alquist, one of his rivals from that primary. Also received a $5,000 donation from Milford Terrell, who is a former member of the State Board of Education. Maybe more importantly, in context of this race, Terrell was uh, Raul Labrador's uh, campaign treasurer during the primary. That was so, a tough primary. And, and it was a bruising primary. I mean, we, you know, you know, there were there was a lot of ugliness and a lot of sniping, uh, you know, between the three candidates. So signs that some of the, you know, the factions within the Republican Party are kind of coalescing behind right. Brad Little. Not so much when you look at Paulette Jordan's uh, Sunshine Report. Uh, a lot of... Uh, a lot of large contributions coming from tribal nations, not just uh, Idaho uh, tribal nations like, like the Shoshone-Bannock tribes and the Coeur d'Alene tribe, where Paula Jordan is a member, but tribal nations from around the country uh, giving significant contributions to the Jordan campaign. What I, that's not really surprising. But what is surprising and maybe telling at this point, very few donations from traditional Democratic circles within Idaho. The yeah. only legislator that I could find in you know giving money to the Paulette Jordan campaign was uh, was a new legislator, Margaret Gannon, who replaced Paulette Jordan right. in the legislature, succeeded Jordan in the legislature earlier this year. That's the only legislator that I could find who I uh, gave money to to Paulette Jordan. So so by comparison, you know I look at what. You know Cindy Wilson's fundraising, and I look at Paulette Jordan's fundraising. I also look at Kristen Collum, the uh, lieutenant governor's candidate on the Democratic side. A lot of you know key Democratic leaders uh, supporting Collum's campaign. You know several legislators uh, contributing to to Collum, but not to Jordan. It, and that lieutenant governor's race really quickly. There's quite a bit of money in this race. For oh a, yeah, we were just for talking a, about for that. a part-time position in state government. Both candidates, uh, both Kristen Collum and Janice McGeehan, the, the Republican nominee, far outraising the two candidates for state superintendent. So again, yeah, you, know, you know, when we talk about a four-to-one fundraising advantage for for Cindy Wilson heading into the final weeks, that's mathematically correct. But we're talking about forty thousand dollars versus a shade over ten thousand dollars that that Sherry Ibarra has uh, at her disposal. Either way, not a whole lot of money. The lieutenant governor's race. Watch and see. I think you're going to see some advertising, perhaps. I think you're going to see some literature drops. I think you're going to see 
you know, both candidates have some money to spend between now and election day. So for a part-time job, for a part-time position that, you know, really kind of the only power <laughs> the lieutenant governor gets is, is largely what is bestowed by the governor, lots of, lots of money and, and maybe some traffic, uh, maybe some advertising, maybe some, uh, some get out the vote and literature drop and all that kind of good stuff in that race. So don't know what we'll see in the superintendent's Two race. candidates in the lieutenant governor's race who were very excited about sitting on the Senate floor, banging the gavel, and hoping someone is absent so they could perhaps break a tie, which is one of the main roles that the lieutenant governor actually plays. And I mean, I guess Brad Little was sort of famous for reading all this legislation in case mm -hmm. he was asked upon, you know, called upon to break a tie, but it almost never happens, right? Right, and you know... But it is sort of dependent on who the governor is and what they see the roles in the administration being. And, and, and yes, when the governor is out of state, the lieutenant governor is the chief executive of the state. And yes, lieutenant governor is, you know, the proverbial person who is one heartbeat away from being governor. I, I get all of that. And I'm not trying to downplay that. But really, you know, what we've seen over the past few years with the lieutenant governors is, you know, what they do is largely a function of what... Uh, the governor uh, allows them to do and, and empowers them to do. So maybe yeah. some vetting of a possible appointments and things like that on yeah, the front yeah. end. Uh, certainly being a part of some of the trade delegations and, and some of the meetings. Economic and development like that. has been always something that seems to fall into the lieutenant governor's bailiwick, but there is no <laughs> formal bailiwick. It, it's really up to, you know, up to the governor to help kind of chart that course. So Anyway, that was uh, kind of you know, my takeaways out of the, uh, the Sunshine Reports, and we'll get another round of reports a few days before the election, and we'll see where the numbers are then. All right. I appreciate you keeping tabs on that. Real quickly, let's move forward and talk about, you've been digging into college and career advising and taking a closer look at some of the programs in the state of Idaho, but what were you working on uh, this week and what do you have to report? Well, this is a story that I I broke last week. We published it last week, and we didn't have a chance to talk about it because I, you know, because I was on vacation. Yep. But uh, I wanted to look at this college and career advising money because it's it's now a pretty significant chunk of money. So over the past three years, the legislature has earmarked twenty one million dollars to help school districts and charter schools hire advisors or help advise high school students about their options beyond high school. So what I wanted to do is I looked at the money and tried to get a sense of where the money is going and how it's being spent and how is it affecting students. And what I found was it's really hard to track the money down to the last dollar. What I looked at were the reports that the, uh, the districts and charters submitted last fall. Every year the districts and charters are supposed to submit a report about you know, what they're doing in terms of a uh, college and career advising, but they don't really have to account for the money. They're not required to submit a report that explains where the money goes. And furthermore, they, they have a lot of latitude under the law about where the money goes. So when the legislature talks about this budget line item as being a line item for college and career advisors, that's not really the whole story. Uh, districts and charters can spend the money to hire staff. Most of them do. Most of the money appears to be going into that purpose, but it doesn't have to. They have wide latitude to do with the money what they will, what they think best. So what I found in the reports to the state 
Uh, the CUNA School District spent almost $30,000 on a marketing campaign to try to help high school students and parents understand the array of options before them after high school, that it's not all about four-year college. Um, I found one district that spent some of the money uh, to bring a motivational speaker in. Um, one spent uh, some money to, uh, you know, for textbook rentals for kids who were taking, I think it was advanced placement classes. Uh, one district in a largely Latino community in the Magic Valley, Murtaugh, uh, used some of the money to bring in a Spanish language interpreter for, for you know, nights when they bring parents in to talk about, uh, you know, post high school options. So a, a, a variety of options about where the money spent and a lot of the money going to uh, towards you know, college fairs mm -hmm. or campus visits to get high school students onto college campuses. And, you know, again, the money's going really all over the place. Uh, you know, and, and we kind of tried to track that, but we couldn't really track it down to the last dollar. So where does this go now? That's what's kind of interesting. Uh, the legislature has asked the State Board of Education to hire out a study to look at the spending and the outcomes. Uh, this is the same legislature that a couple of years ago deleted language from the rule on college and career advising that would have required the schools to report their, their spending and, and account for their spending. So on the one hand, three years ago, uh, this legislature took a very hands-off approach to the money and where it goes. And now you're seeing a lot more of a hands-on approach. And I think it's kind of a you know, maybe illustrative of a bigger issue where I think uh, some legislators are wanting to see you know, some, some return on investment with some of these line items, whether it's college and career advising, uh, whether it's literacy, and we've, we've heard a lot of talk back and forth uh, with, with legislators maybe concerned about how is this literacy initiative really working at this point. Mastery education is another one. You know, so you're starting to see legislators maybe pushing back a little bit and asking, okay, we're putting money into these programs, we're, we're establishing these as priorities, what are we getting for the money? And this isn't new. We always see this tug of war with this battle between line items and local control versus, you know, spelling out exactly what you want to do versus giving districts the latitude. We talk about that all the time. Uh, and that's something that's going on right now as we talk about this funding formula change. Right. And, 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 and but that's an age-old battle in the it's, legislature. It's an age-old battle, and I think this one's a little bit more complicated for a couple of reasons. First of all, the money is distributed based on enrollment. So West Ada gets more than $800,000 for career, for college and career advising. So they hire nearly nine full-time positions with that money. I mean, they, they have you know enough money to hire an, an, a staff of advisors. Your smaller districts and your smaller charters uh, get as little as $7,000, or that's you know the, the floor from a, a year ago. You're not going to hire you, somebody. You can't hire a counselor for that. You can't hire a, a full-time anybody for $7,000. Yeah. The best you can do in terms of staffing is, you know, maybe you add some contract days. Maybe you hire somebody part-time. You know, maybe you free up a teacher and you hire some substitute teachers to, to do some backfilling. And you see some evidence of, of schools trying to come up with sort of creative approaches to that. But really, when you got $7,000... You may just spend it on, you know, college trips or, you know, you know, you know, you know campus visits because that's really about the, the most logical thing that you can do with seven thousand dollars. So, you know, I think in fairness to the smaller schools, uh, the smaller districts and charters, the, their hands are a bit tied with so what they can do with the money. Yeah. You know, seven thousand bucks. What are you going to do with it? Uh, 
Um, yeah, and, and I think, too, it'll be interesting to see this report when it comes out uh, in February, when it goes to legislators in February, because this is a hard thing to quantify. I mean, how much of an effect does a college and career advisor have on a, on a kid's life? Potentially could have a huge effect. Mm -hmm. It could really be a, a life-changing relationship between an advisor and a student. That That is true. But it's also really hard to quantify. I mean, when you're talking about something like the literacy initiative, you can look at reading scores and say, well, what's happening here? What's the trend line that we're seeing? When you look at advanced opportunities, you can say, okay, how many kids are enrolling and what? How do these credits transfer if they go to college? Well, you know, a lot easier to kind of quantify the impact. The impact of a college and career advisor, much more difficult to quantify. It's a lot more of a qualitative thing. So I'll be really curious to see what the report says and what sort of conclusions can be drawn. All right. Head over to the homepage, idahoednews.org. Scroll back to last week uh, to find your report on the college and career advising. But I know uh, higher education, the transition from higher education or from uh, public school to higher education and the affordability and attainability of higher education are all things that you're focusing on. Uh, you have a big project coming at the end of this year. Uh, yeah, so stay November. tuned. Mm -hmm. uh, stay tuned. But I do, before we sign off, I want to talk a little bit about you playing hooky last week. Uh, the reason that we had Melissa Davlin on the pod instead of you uh, you had a the, great the big irregular drink. host, Melissa Davlin. Uh, the irregular, the abnormal host. Abnormal. But, okay. Uh, I, I, I we're sitting in your me. office right now, recording the podcast, and you have a lot more bling and swag on the wall. Where were you, and, and what were you up to last week? It's a good excuse to miss the pod if ever there was one. So on Sunday, I ran the Chicago Marathon, which is one of the largest marathons in the world. Um, Forty-five thousand runners uh, from around the globe. I mean, that's part of the, the coolness of this experience is that you are running with with people from from all corners of the earth come to Chicago. This is one of the biggest marathons uh, in the world. So you have you have elite runners. Uh, Mo Farah, who is a gold medalist uh, from Britain at, at shorter distances, was the winner at the marathon on Sunday. Uh, Galen Rupp was one of the elite runners. He has run for the U.S. at the Olympics. So you've got your elite runners, <laughs> and then you've got your non-elite runners like me. Um, but what was crazy about it is it wasn't just that there were 45,000 of us on the streets of Chicago. There were hundreds of thousands of people lining the streets to to cheer for, for all of us. They didn't just show up for the elite runners and, and go and, you know, go and get brunch. I mean, they stuck around on a kind of a cloudy, dreary somewhat rainy day in spots and just yelled and screamed. I mean, yeah, my, my tie to Chicago is that I went to, to Northwestern, which is just north of Chicago. So one of, the, one of the smart things I did, I guess, was that I wore a Northwestern shirt for the race. And I got so many, you know, total strangers just saying, hey, go Cats, go, go Northwestern. And, and just, you know, high fives and, and, and people just cheering you and just, you know, it was a really fun experience because, you know, I mean, you know, running can be such a solitary activity, especially when you're out there alone training. And this is the opposite. I mean, it's this big party and this big event and you get to see a, a city in so much more detail. And you really get to go into the neighborhoods and, and get the fabric of a community in a way that you could never really do any other way. So it was just a really, really cool experience. I, I I'm proudly uh, showing off the, the bling and the swag from, from Sunday and, you know, kind of capped off the day Sunday night eating uh, Chicago-style deep dish pizza <laughs> with, without a shred of guilt. So it was a pretty good day to be a runner. And it was, 
it, it was fun to play hooky. It's good to be back uh, back doing the job, but uh, what, an, what an amazing adventure it was. Absolutely. Congratulations. This is what, four or five marathons? This is my fourth. Okay. And it, you know, I've loved all four of the full marathons I've done. They're, they're you know, they're great experiences and, you know, just, but this one I think was a little bit special. Just the, the community support, just the outpouring. I, I was just blown away. I, I still am talking about it, you know, five days later. I'm still stunned and, and, and awestruck. All right. And uh, your schedule is tight, uh, but if you want to make an appointment to stop by the office and see the finisher's medal and some of the swag. You don't have like office hours. A you know? few <laughs> openings next week. Uh, we'll try to get you in. Uh, but absolutely, congratulations. Thank you. I had a sense of how important it was to you. I know you were able to bring your wife, and I know Chicago itself is near and dear uh, to your heart. And, and so. It's just a great city. I mean, just, it is a fun it's, town. It's a, it's a great city. Absolutely. Congratulations. Um, what a cool experience. So glad that you got to do that. Uh, selfishly, I'm glad that you're back now and that we can both cover the campaigns uh, together because guess yeah, what? We have less than a month until November 6th. Yeah, this is not a marathon for us now. This is the sprint to the finish here covering the election. So we got plednty to do. All right, stick with us at IdahoEdNews.org for full coverage of the campaigns leading up to the November 6th election. Give us a follow at IdahoEdNews on Twitter for all of our latest uh, breaking news. We'll be back next week with another new edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. We'll let you know what's happening uh, next week in politics, and we'll give you a recap of the big state superintendent's debate on Friday. As always, thanks so much for joining us here on Extra Credit. We always have a lot of fun. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week. 